Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Michael Beller here with Derek Van Riper on a Friday afternoon. Derek, how you doing today? Doing well, Beller, as, as well as I think I can be given the circumstances around us right now. How about you? Yeah, I'm in the, pretty much the same boat. We're uh, all doing what we can to make the best of it, and that's what we're uh, hopefully going to help you guys all do for the next uh, 40, 45 minutes or so. Uh, of course, you can get Derek at Derek Van Riper. I am at M. Beller. And on today's show, we are joined by Scott Pianowski of Yahoo, FSW award-winning fame, also a friend of ours in actual real life. Uh, Scott Pianowski uh, joining us here at Scott Pianowski on Twitter. Pianow, how you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, make sure you throw that underscore on my Twitter account. Oh, because, yep, yep. Yeah, somebody somebody decided they wanted to squat on my Twitter account ten <laughs> years ago. God knows why, because you, man, you couldn't pick anybody you know more important than me. I mean, you you really failed at life when when you decide I'm the guy you want to emulate. But good to be talking to you guys. You know, we're all in this together, trying to make some sense of where life is right now, hoping for a baseball season down the road. Um, I just hope people out there are just trying to stay positive, being good to each other, and you know, uh, hopefully things will be in a better place soon. So you didn't uh, like go what, whatever Tom Brady's going to do with Chris Godwin in Tampa and, and offer the at Scott Pianowski without the underscore any <laughs> lavish gifts or anything like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I promised I'd make a big uh, donation to his foundation, you know, <laughs> Troll Foundation or whatever. No, I, I, I just said he could have it, and uh, I'd go with the underscore and uh, – Underscore life has worked out fine for me. Yeah, it's uh, it's going all right. So that's Scott underscore Pianowski, P-I-A-N-O-W-S-K-I. Uh, Pianow, uh, life goes on in the fantasy world, at least as much as it can. And uh, you were part of two big industry uh, leagues uh, that did a draft and an auction uh, last week. Uh, you were in the uh, Top Wars mixed auction and then also the Yahoo Friends and Family draft, which you ran, you put together. So as someone in that league, thank you for doing that and keeping us rolling. Derek is with you in the Top Wars Mixed Auction. So we've got uh, one member of your league in, on this show on each of these leagues. So I uh, figure this would be a good point to talk about it. Uh, the, the, the These two leagues are, are pretty similar, right? These are 15-team leagues. These are industry leagues. So sharp minds uh, across the room in both leagues. Uh, a lot of controlled variables in that way. They have similar enough scoring systems, similar enough starting roster requirements. The one big difference, of course, is that your Top Wars League is an auction. Yahoo Friends and Family is a draft. We know that that is going to require a different approach. So I'm wondering how your approach was different because one's an auction and one's a draft. I mean, first of all, I, I certainly prefer auction. And if it were more um, friendly to some of the people in the Friends and Family League, I think I would have done an auction. We actually have one more team in, in the FNF, so that's a 16-teamer. But the player penetration is similar. We have fewer bench players in the Yahoo League, so we're probably drafting just about as many guys. Um, the rules are a little bit different. Uh, obviously, OBP is what they use and tout. It's average in, in most other leagues, including Friends and Family. I had the two-pick in the Yahoo friends and family. And my personality is not, I mean, look, I mean, you can win from any spot. I'm not complaining. I got Ronald Acuna and everybody would love to own him or, or Trout or Bellinger, Yelich. I mean, everybody loves those guys. You, you get the two pick, you're getting a great player, but in a league with 16 teams, I'd prefer to be in the middle of the draft. I just feel I, I'm more in tune with things. It just fits the flow of the draft for me better. And I don't have to make these guesses on, okay, I'm making a pick on the end or a couple picks on the end. Now there's going to be nothing to do for a long time, and the personality of the player pool may significantly change before I pick again. Do I want to try to address that proactively? Do I want to be reactive about it? Can I see when a run is going to come? Am, am I just going to get get involved in it? Am I going to blow it off? I I feel like I draft better in the middle of a draft. Maybe I just feel more in tune with things. I, I don't I don't lose the shape of the player pool the way sometimes I do on the end. It's strange because I think if if I had a choice. I would choose either end over the middle, though if you're in the middle, you can be a little more defensive if there's a run. You know, you're less likely to miss out on something. If you're on the end, maybe you can start one of those runs. But I think the reason I've come to appreciate being at the end of the draft order is because you build your team in twos. And that, to me, is a little bit more like the way I build a team in an auction. So I'm just I'm kind of curious to know, like, where everybody in general falls on this. I hadn't really thought much about there being such a, a strong preference to be in the middle before. I thought most people kind of want to play off the ends for that sort of uh, added knowledge, like knowing getting two players pretty close together. If you're not in the absolute end, maybe you got two picks in the span of five or six picks overall. Uh, being able to control things might be a bit easier. But 
A broader question for you as I look at the, the Tout Wars team you put together, uh, I think you built a really stable base, and you didn't get caught up paying 5 7 $10 above projected value for the stars at the absolute top of the pool. Was that a conscious decision going in, knowing how people have been handling this room in recent years, or was it something that you kind of adjusted to on the fly when you saw just how extreme that inflation at the top was? I think it's very common for me to have the uh, to take a tagline from the movie The Player. Uh, the tagline they were constantly saying is "No stars, just talent." And I love fantasy teams that are no stars, just talent. Like I love the the two thousand four Detroit Pistons, which was a bunch of really really good players like Billups and Rasheed Wallace and Tayshawn Prince, but nobody who was going to win the MVP award. I think it fits my personality to build teams like that and. There's been certain fantasy leagues I've done this approach. I, I don't look. I don't go to any draft or auction with. I, I have to do ABC strategy, and I'm not going to move from it. I mean, I, I want to be open minded to adjusting to flow and contour and all that. But and there's been some leagues where I, I've gone in with this idea of getting a bunch of B, B, P, B plus players, a bunch of you know solid players, but not superstars. I've used that in the, the Rotowire golf auction for 20 years, and I think I've cashed maybe like 45 percent of the time. It's been incredibly successful, but that's golf. That's a different sport. And I've given up a lot of, I've only won, I think one of the majors and the whole time we've run that league, only one of my golfers has ever won a major. So I, I don't have the superstars. I, one year I own Tiger, but whatever. To be totally fair and transparent, even though I have a couple of second place finishes on my tout resume, I, I have not had a good run in the tout wars mixed league the last few years. So, I mean, I've I've asked myself, you know, why is that? Have I have I not been prepared enough for the auction? Have I not been focused enough? Am I not familiar enough with the website it's run on? Am I just getting outvalued or you know, out outplayed by my opponents? I mean, it's, it's a very strong room, and I have a lot of respect for it. So um, I have to say up front, even though I feel good about the team I left the auction table with, I I've felt good about teams before, and then you know, not contended with them. So take that what it is uh, worth. But what I saw. When an auction starts, okay, you, you don't know. Sometimes you, an auction starts and everybody spends like their college freshman with their first credit card, and it's just crazy. And sometimes an auction starts, and it's almost like people haven't woken up yet. And we look back and say, "Oh man, the, the buying period was the first few players." You know, people, why did Trout go? You know, five dollars under market or whatever. I felt like this auction started, and the top players were going for at least what they should, maybe in some cases more than they should. And I quickly thought, okay, I, I want to get the most established, solid, highly projectable, and yet boring team I can. I'm going to shop in the B-plus rack. And I'm also going to try to avoid – I don't like to get $1 players in a mixed league auction. I know people will say, well, all the $1 players are pretty good, and I, to which I say, yes, they, they are. It's, you know, it's, it's a, a mixed league is like that. But I think the $2 players and the $3 players and the $4 players are usually clearly better than the $1 players. And this league, this auction, by the way, had a – unusually high amount of $1 players. A bunch of people spent their money and said, okay, I'm just going to draft the final, whether quarter or 10 or 15% of my team in the $1 bin. And so it turned into a really long draft at one point. I was thankful I wasn't in that. But in any, in any event, I was open-minded to, it might be a team of Anthony Rizzo's and Zach Greinke's and Whit Merrifield's, all good players, but nobody is on the cover of a fantasy magazine. I don't really have a front man. I, I was prepared... I was toying with the idea of a Freddie Freeman, no matter what strategy. And then I backed off that when Ron Chandler pushed back with me. So, you know, I, I quickly threw that out the window. So yes, there is not, I probably don't have, I have a lot of former Cy Young award winners on my team. I have a lot of former MVP candidates on my team. I can't guarantee you any of these guys will hit those heights this season. I trying to make it work with no stars, just talent. Yeah, one thing that jumped out at me when I was looking through these results, uh, looking at your team, PNL, is uh, your first few buys. So uh, Paul Goldschmidt was the first guy on your team. That was the 18th person nominated. Next buy was Anthony Rizzo, the 27th person nominated. Next one was Clayton Kershaw. All good players, right? I mean, pretty much exactly what you just said. Guys who fall in that former MVP candidate, former Cy Young winner, not going to be on the cover of Fantasy Magazine. Clayton Kershaw was the 68th person nominated i just want to know how i mean how do you have that level of patience i mean i would have and i hate to admit it but it's true i would get an itchy trigger finger uh not buying any players for 40 nominations in a league that is this sharp uh where so many good players are coming off the board uh, first of all how do you have that level of patience and secondly uh, how do you feel looking at the team top to bottom how that level of patience worked out for you 
you know, I think maybe it comes from having a poker background where I, I joke with some of my poker friends, like the last call of poker session is going and I'll say, oh, I'm, I'm folding the greatness. You know, I'm just, okay, fold, fold, jack three, fold, king eight, fold, you know, queen nine, really not a good hand, fold, ace 10, and somebody's raised in front of me, I'm out of position, fold. That's something I'm comfortable doing. I'm comfortable waiting things out, which I know that may sound in uh, contrast to not liking to pick on the ends in a snake draft, but it just, so I think the, the draft also just flowed in a certain way. You, you know, people talk about what, what is your nomination strategy when Goldschmidt and Rizzo were two of my early, actually literally my first two guys I bought, then it was very easy for me to nominate first baseman after that, because it just wouldn't make sense for me to go after a first baseman. And to be fair, some of the first baseman I nominated went for amounts lower than I expected. And it, you know, kind of set a pit in my stomach like oh, that that stinks i mean what a really good deal that was on um reese hoskins for example in an obp league but so it made my nomination strategy easy and you know a couple times first baseman came up i was even able to leave the room use the restroom you know tend to the dog whatever it was um, but i think part of this long gap was just just what happened that guys that didn't fit the type of player i wanted to buy were coming up and so I was, a lot of them were easy to avoid and then in other cases where I was in there pitching and in their bidding, just num- they went to numbers I wasn't comfortable with. And I thought, okay, I think there's inflation going on. I think, I think people are paying a little bit too much. I think there's going to be values later. You, you can't always assume that's going to be the case, but I felt comfortable that I thought this would be the case. So I was able to sit in my hands a little bit. I ended up buying guys in clusters. It, it didn't, again, I don't do that intentionally. Like, oh, okay, I got to get three of the next seven guys. I would never say something like that, which is kind of funny. Like Kershaw, 68, Bryant, 70, Greinke, 71. I might mean, just happen to buy four players in like a five-player pocket. Again, I would never do that intentionally, just kind of how it fell. One of the things I really liked about doing this auction online is looking at the results grid where you can see the pick order and obviously what was spent, but you can also see the timestamps and you can get a feel for the ebbs and flows of what happened in the room because a lot of times we see roster grids with the dollar values next to them and we have no sense of context as to what was going on in the room at that time. Uh, so just from an individual level, yeah, you can kind of look and see like, oh, here's a, a window where one owner got a little bit aggressive and bought a couple of players in the span of 10 or 15 minutes. Here's a one-hour break. And you can just kind of understand maybe what was happening in the mind of that owner or at least in the minds of some of the people at the table. Uh, you mentioned poker and fantasy baseball and some some overlapping principles. And one thing I was thinking about was you know, having this auction live you can tell, I think, a lot about what people want to do sitting in the same room playing with them. And I'm sure your extensive experience online poker versus live poker uh, gives you some insight as to things you might be able to kind of pick out when you're auctioning live versus when you're auctioning online. Do you think that helps? And how much do you think the move to online may have actually helped you or some of the other players in this league? I actually think any anybody who's trying to use their poker skills, like remember the whole argument in rounders where Damon says, "You said to use my poker skills in the courtroom," and uh, and she says, well, "You know what I mean? I, I, I meant use your head. You know the way you calculate odds on the spot, the way you read people. A lot of those poker skills they're much better in person, where you can read body language, where you can read voice cadence. There's none of that in the auction room. So I think you lose a lot of people talk about what are the online poker tells. I guess what the timing of a bet." And then the the numbers themselves, the betting patterns. So I guess you can still get some tells maybe on how if people are throwing out certain numbers, or if they seem sensitive to certain bid numbers, if somebody's trying to win a bid by a jump bid, if somebody's trying to do the price line bid where they throw out a guy with a big number right away, they're willing to pay, but they're going to back off if it gets topped. Some of those things will, will be evergreen. But I think from a poker player standpoint, I think you lose a lot. And, and look, I mean, I salute fan tracks for hosting. I salute the, the tout. Um, board for assembling everything online as quickly as they did. I mean, we were talking about before the show, just the timeline of events. I mean, what happened a week ago or two weeks ago feels like months ago because the world has been so crazy for obvious reasons. So I, I again, the people who ran Tout Wars, thank you for making this tenable and, and giving everybody the experience that we got, making the best of a unfortunate situation. But I think a lot of the poker tells are out the window when you go online. You're looking at timing, cadence, and bidding patterns. You can look at those things, but you lose all the body language. You lose all the verbal cadence. That stuff doesn't apply anymore. I want to 
tie these two teams of yours together uh, because you're one of the first guys I remember uh, doing what you call uh, your uh, wallet column. You do it for football and baseball every year, uh, just running down the guys who, for whatever reason, maybe it's because you aggressively target them, maybe it's just happenstance, ended up on a lot of your teams. So I took a look at these two teams, and there are two guys who ended up on both of them, both pitchers, both very known commodities, guys who uh, we would be shocked if they didn't do what we expected them to do coming into the season Clayton Kershaw and Kyle Hendricks. Was this design? Are these two guys who you found yourself going after aggressively in your drafts and auctions this year? Or was it just, this is the way that the auction unfolded. This is the way that the friends and family draft unfolded for you. Kind of a mix of those two things. Um, you know, picking second in the friends and family draft, I was not going to take a picture then. And then not picking again until selection 31. It's just so many pitchers I love who are never going to be there. You know, DeGraw long gone, Flaherty long gone, Walker Bueller long gone. So again, I knew I had to, to shop in the B plus rack if I wanted to get a pitcher. And the thing with Kershaw is it's fair for people to ding the fact that he hasn't made 30 starts in a season since 2015. But I hope people don't lose the fact that he's always really good when he's on the mound. I mean, his, his whip has never been higher than 1.04 since the 2010 season. I mean, for a decade, this guy's whip is right around one, sometimes considerably lower than one. And even now in the quote-unquote decline phase of his career, we're getting a 1.04 whip. That's just outstanding to think of. Anytime he's on the mound, you're, you're getting really good ratio help. His, his ERA has fluctuated uh, between 231 and 303 the last three years. I know ERA is not a perfect metric, and there's better ways to evaluate how well a pitcher has pitched, but that's what we use. I mean, the ERA is what we take away and, and we apply to our fantasy stats. So I, mean, I think it's fair to expect an ERA probably in the – high twos, may, maybe in the low threes if a little bit of attrition comes in. And all I have to deal with is just that Dodgeritis thing where maybe he, you know, if he has a hiccup, if he has the slightest bit of an injury, they might back off him. But you know, if there's a partial season, I haven't baked it. I don't really know. I know you're probably going to ask me about how do we handle the expected partial season. I mean, they're not going to play 162 games. We can all see that. How do we factor that into fantasy? I wonder if the Dodgers, if we were talking – with the expectation of a full season, you would think, okay, there's no way Kershaw throws 190 innings. They're, they're just, this team's going to clinch so early. They've won so many divisions in a row. There's no team to really challenge them. So they can just play like they're in the playoffs already and, and really be careful with their top assets. If we see a much shorter season, maybe the Dodgers won't have that freedom. And, and maybe Kershaw might be closer to pitching 100% of his starts than we might have seen in a previous year. So Kershaw, just, he's a B-plus player I happen to like. He fit the price and tout. He fit the slot in the friends and family draft. That's how I went. With Hendricks, he's just one of those Abanias all-stars. He's a boring veteran. There's nothing exciting about him. Doesn't have a particularly high strikeout rate, which is kind of hard to stomach because we're at a time where pitchers get more strikeouts and batters don't care if they strike out. But I feel like Hendricks is just a, a boring middle-round value guy you can get. I still think the Cubs would be a decent team, probably not a great team, but you know, 85 wins over a full season, that kind of pace. I would expect. And I think Hendricks has been just a little bit underappreciated for the majority of his career. So he kind of fits my style as a mid-staff guy. You know, you brought up two things I wanted to I want to pursue now. I'm going to go with the first one, though. You mentioned Kershaw and the Dodgers' depth. Um, I was talking with uh, one of our national uh, beat writers, Andy McCullough, on a show uh, a couple of days ago, and he's you know, based in Los Angeles. He used to cover the Dodgers, so he's obviously got um, a lot of insight into that team, and he uh, is one of the two people on our Dodgers podcast, Describes of Summer. And we were talking about the Dodgers' depth and whether that – uh, will remain a, a as much of a relative strength as it would have in a full 162-game season. Obviously, we're not getting anywhere near 162 this year, so does their depth now become, obviously it's not a weakness, but is it as much of a strength as it would have been in a full year? And, and it could trickle down to the fantasy world in the way that you mentioned with Clayton Kershaw, um, it, it, maybe with David Price gets the same sort of bump uh, if he doesn't need to uh, think about staying healthy over a full season plus the playoffs since we know the Dodgers are almost certainly going to the playoffs. Uh, and it could hurt a guy like Ross Stripling who was maybe going to fill in those gaps um, and, and get some starts and not just be a long man out of the bullpen or a high leverage guy out of the bullpen. Have you factored that at all into your post-delay draft and auction thinking these teams that have this extreme depth and how that's going to change in a season where maybe we're only getting you know, 70, 80, 90 games, whatever it might be? I mean, it makes intuitive sense. I'm not sure how proactively I've considered it, but I, I can, when you're describing it, I can at least nod along. And it's interesting the tout 
auction when we got to the reserve rounds and where we picked six extra guys, my final guy, and I didn't really even think about this at the time, but I picked, I picked Ross Stripling just thinking, okay, if, if somebody has a hiccup on this staff, your Stripling makes sense as their next starter, not necessarily tying it into the fact that I already had Kershaw, but now that I think of it, I actually feel pretty good about that. You mentioned David Price. This is the first time I've said this in several years. He hasn't been my favorite player for a few different reasons. And I think him going to Boston just never made sense. Um, the market, the the media pressure and attention, uh, just the way the team is digested in that area. And now he goes to Los Angeles. Look, this is narrative. I, I get the narrative street sign is blinking, but I don't care. This just makes too much sense for me. He's traded to the Dodgers. He's not even. It's not even the David Price trade. It's the Mookie Betts trade, right? Price is just in it. Part of its salary relief. Now he slots behind Kershaw. He slots behind Bueller. The team is, is going to be an overwhelming favorite to win that division. He just kind of get lost in the shuffle. The media market, the, the way that the pace of the media and the cadence of the media in LA is totally different than it is in Boston. So I think he's going to the right team at the right time and he can just relax. It, it, he got too off on the wrong foot with, with everything in Boston. And I, I think part of it was Price's fault. You know, part of it was the media's fault, but He's going to LA at the right time. And, and even though I don't think he's been a giveaway by any means, but I keep seeing him go at a cost that I think makes a lot of sense. I have a little bit of price right now. I wish it were more of it. And when we actually get back and a lot of drafts are on hold right now, when people actually start drafting a lot again, I'm going to be willing to go the extra buck for David Price. I think he's a great guy to get this season. Yeah, I'm with you on price. I mean, everything about the situation for him is better going from AL to NL, the, the media situation, mm-hmm. totally different. Uh, just the way the Dodgers handle pitching in general. I mean, I, I want anybody that the Dodgers are using in that rotation. It goes down to uh, even less talented guys. Tony Gonsolin becomes really interesting to me as a waiver wire pickup if opportunity knocks and he actually gets to fill a spot. They do have so much depth, though. I have to wonder if they just uh, use all these guys in short relief and say, you know what, maybe we have one guy that gets sent down or one guy who's the long man. Everybody else is going to be in short relief. If we have to send Gonsolin down and stretch him out or something, we could do that later. We could do the same thing with Dustin May. And then they make their bullpen just lights out nasty with some of the starting pitching depth that they don't necessarily have to hold quite the same way uh, with the potentially shortened season. But yeah, David Price definitely stood out to me as kind of an undervalued player uh, since the time that the trade happened. Maybe even undervalued if he was going to stay in Boston, too. I don't think people realize that 2017-2018 had low to mid threes ERAs, whips under 120. And before the injury in 2019, he was on track for the same quality ratios that we've come to expect. So uh, he just looks like one of those guys that, for one reason or another, yeah, people have just written off a little bit too soon. I'm with you on Hendricks too, by the way. Like Kyle Hendricks, I think because so much of our analysis early in draft season comes from NFBC results, and he doesn't do the one thing that NFBC owners love to chase with the strikeouts. I think that also like plays into how people deflate him uh, as a guy that can get you a full season's worth of innings with well above average ratios, above average, of course, in a good way. Uh, one other kind of question for you just pertaining to your Tout War squad. And uh, it's interesting because I, I think you, you've started to find the higher ceiling guys a little bit later on and they're not necessarily higher ceiling young guys but they're they're players who I still think haven't had their best year I still look at Paul DeYoung and wonder if there's one more level there at the very least you know he's going to play every day he's in the heart of that order Um, of the bottom half roster guys the under ten dollar guys that you got at Tout Wars who really jumped off the page to you as a particularly strong value over the weekend I do like DeYoung. It's possible I don't like him as much as you do, but I feel that this is the deepest shortstop pool we've seen in a long time, and you can do well at any price point. And uh, I wanted to be – I regret not bidding on Tim Anderson. I, I think he went too cheap in this draft. He went into double digits, but I, I know he's obviously not a great OBP guy, so that has to be factored in. But he he's not – people have always been waiting for Tim Anderson to have the 225 season that he never has. And obviously last year he fell into a batting title. Nobody expects that to repeat, but – I thought he was a nice value, but I, I went to DeYoung as one of my middle infielders. I think five bucks is a really good price on him because the power is going to play. Could be a decent lineup. I'm, I'm really a big Matthew Boyd guy to the point that sometimes you start drafting a guy or acquiring so much of a player that you almost wonder, have I just assumed this already happened and it's the right answer and I'm, I'm just following the tracks in the snow and then maybe not thinking this through, but the strikeout rate has already arrived. 
he's trying to master that change up and figure out how to get right-handed hitters out more effectively. I think there's probably 30 to 50% chance he's traded at some point in the season. If he's traded, it will have to be to a team better than Detroit. It's not like he'd be traded the Orioles or, or the Marlins or something. I mean, he'd be traded to a contender. I remember last year he was really close to being traded to Houston. So I think Boyd is somebody where if I get last year, I'd probably take him for eight bucks. And I think there's an re- excellent chance he could have growth where his ratios could come down significantly. Again, maybe he's on a better team. I felt really good about that. There are fleas with Brandon Workman and Alex Colomay, but I got two presumptive closers for six and eight bucks, respectively. Red Sox are still going to be at least a probably 81 win team over a full season, a 500 team, something like that. And I'm really excited about the White Sox. I think they could be a sleeper for a wild card. This is going to be a loaded team and a really, really dangerous team someday. I don't know if it's this year. Maybe they're a year away, but I think they're going to be the, when we go back and look at the end of the decade, in this division, I think we're going to say, oh, wow, Chicago, who I don't even think made the playoffs in the previous division in the previous decade. I think they're going to run the AL Central for the next 10 years. I don't know if it starts this year. And, you know, Colomay needs to be on point because they have extremely good depth behind him. They have three or four guys who all look like they could close if Colomay can't handle it. But he's quietly been a consistent reliever for the last three or four seasons. Not, not a dominant guy, not a lights out stuff guy, but kind of marked his territory last year. And even though they have really good sources of, of relief innings and possible closers behind him. I, I think he's kind of an underrated second or third tier closer on what I think will be a winning team. Yeah, I'm with you on the White Sox there, Pianow, in my uh, home league, which we have uh, our, our auction was supposed to be Monday, which we've uh, now delayed. Uh, it's, a, it's a keeper, and uh, I am carrying over Yoan Moncada, Alex Colome, uh, Jose Abreu, and Lucas Giolito uh, from, from last year, because I think that that is going to be an absolutely uh, loaded team, and I want investment in that squad uh, pretty much in any way I can get it. So happy to have all those White Sox carrying over. Um, you know, I want to move us on to something else here, but I can't let – I can't. We, we've talked about Kyle Hendricks a couple of times on this show. It's you two guys. We run, we've run in the same fantasy circles for a while. Don't you guys get any uh, uh, Kyle Hendricks vibe from our pal Andy Barons? I feel like they could be brothers. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting I, I wonder if maybe Barron's might be a better athlete than Hendricks <laughs> he might be he really yeah. not a better pitcher but no, a better that's not a knock athlete. on Hendricks but it's not a knock on Hendricks yeah. that's actually a, a comment on Barron's being an unbelievable athlete you know what else I really like about Hendricks again this is narrative I don't know if Bill James said it but somebody once said that the best pitchers tended to be the smartest pitchers now I know sometimes you can be too smart for your own good or maybe even too sensitive for your own good that's been a little bit of the David Price problems at times but you look at pitchers who understand the modern game. I, I love reading. I haven't applied this to any of my drafts and actually gotten you, Darvish, but I love that he's made more of a effort to try to understand data and under, take the modern nuances and metrics and make it incorporate that into his own game. I, I love hearing that. I, I love my, the pitchers who are smart. And again, once you get on the mound, you can't be thinking too much. It has to be stuff you do off the field. It has to be stuff you do in your preparation, in your bullpen, when, so when you get out there and you have to react, you know what you're going to do. But I think generally the, the better pitchers tend to be the smarter pitchers. And I know Hendricks definitely checks that box. Yeah, absolutely. No question about that. The uh, Dartmouth grad, one of the smartest guys in the league. You mentioned off the field, uh, PNL. That's pretty much all we've got for the next couple of months here. Wondering uh, what you're doing to fill the time and stay competitive and still be, you know, doing what you can to distract yourself from the much more important, bigger things that are happening in the world while we are uh, on this hiatus from sports. A few different things. Um, a lot of a lot of the leagues that I run, I've just postponed the, the draft indefinitely or the auction indefinitely. We're going to do it at a different time. I'm really glad we did the friends and family when we did. Those two hours we spent together felt therapeutic. Mm-hmm. I felt the same way about the Tut Wars weekend. We just need to be around friends and around. I mean, we're really like a big extended family and community. And I think we needed to connect in the ways that we can. And And I've tried to do that. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of texting with friends, a lot of, uh, you know, some of the meetings we have with Yahoo guys are um, video meetings where you can actually see the person. And I think that's important, but I'm not doing that much as far, I'm trying to stay up on the news. It just isn't that much news. I mean, obviously all the spring training is canceled. You know, the sale news comes down here, you know, San Francisco sent down one of their relievers there, but there isn't that much to grind right now. So it's been for me time to read. Um, try time to work on my body a little bit, you know, try to get some exercise where I can, uh, play some online poker for free with friends, stuff like that. And, uh, just have a sense of, I, I just want my mind 
in my body to be really strong when we're ready to kick into life again. I'm, I'm going to write a piece today about Tom Brady going to the Buccaneers and just how strange that is and, and how I feel about that move and all that. But, and I appreciate the NFL just gave us a week of fun things to talk mm-hmm. about because it's the only sport that really has a news cycle right now. But um, other than that, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm watching classic games. You know, I, I did a tweet about a week ago asking people to name their favorite college basketball teams specific to a season of all time. And a lot of people said that Illinois 2005 team, which is a team I fell in love with. I had no affiliation with Illinois before, watched them play, thought they were incredibly selfless and smart and just fell in love with them. And then they had that great comeback win in the Elite Eight against Arizona. I actually watched uh, most of that game recently and just relived of of how they actually erased a 15-point deficit in like the last three and a half minutes and ended up winning the game in overtime and watching Luther Head and Darren Williams and Dee Brown. I mean, that. Cohesive basketball. I love teams that pl- that share the ball. I love teams. It's almost no dribbling. It's all passing, and that was one of those teams. So, a lot of classic sports, and just trying to get my mind right, trying to trying to get my body right, and stay positive, and, and reach out to people. Let them know that I care about people. Let people know I'm a resource. If you need somebody to talk to, I'm, I'm around. If you want to share something cool that happened with your kid or with your with your pet or with your spouse, you know. I'm, I'm all ears for that, but you know, we're all in it together, man. You know, now is a time where we need connections and we need to feel part of something. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I think that's the, that's the interesting thing about the time we live in is that you can still be together without being in the same space. And if this had happened 20 years ago, the isolation would be a lot more difficult. It's still going to be challenging. I think everyone's going to have good days. Everyone's going to have bad days. You know, we're going to have days where bad news hits and we're down and if we if we continue to push through as best we can and and make sure we're carving out time to catch up with each other even outside of pods uh that's going to go a really long way i think towards uh, helping all of us kind of heal and work through this in the long run um i want to ask you some some general questions too we we like to do toss-ups at the end of our show Uh, i was just thinking the last time we did a friday show was two weeks ago and based on our time continuum being all blown up that's like three months ago in my mind so i'm pretty excited to throw a few of these out there at you uh we'll start with a, a fun one this is one this one's not a baseball one pablo honey versus kid a radiohead's funny for me because they're probably my favorite band of all time just band i've listened to the most seen the most but they have a couple of albums i don't particularly enjoy and, and kid a is one of them i just the vibe of today the style of kid a is not the Radiohead i really enjoy and i also happen to think that pablo honey is grossly underrated uh for me i think the benz is clearly their masterpiece i think okay computer is extremely strong in rainbows is very strong hail to the thief is very strong i'm not a big kid a guy so i that to me is a walkover for pablo honey interesting i I figured maybe that would be a little bit closer okay so so okay computer the benz pablo pablo honey versus the benz you think the benz is is their defining work i think the benz is the best album of the 90s nice by anybody let's uh let's try let's throw a baseball one we'll kind of mix in some music and some baseball sure sure for the 2020 season when it begins keston hira or ketel Marte. That's a great question. Um, I think a lot of people will face that question. I lean here because Marte, what he did last year has to be taken against the rest of his resume. And it's just easier for me to, to tell myself a story of him pumpkin pumpkining or just giving some of that back where with here, he's younger. And I feel like maybe there's a level of consistent stellar production that he could be reasonably expected to produce. That's a great question. I think a lot of, you could ask a hundred analysts, you might get a 50, 50 split on that. I, I mean, I know you're a brewer guy. I'm going to, I'm not doing this to pander to you, but I'm going to go with her. <laughs> sure. You're not sure. You're not being out. I think that I, I think it's a really close one too. I prefer Marte ever so slightly. That's one of those where I like both guys so much that if I was actually faced with it, I would take Marte. He was a guy who, if you Google my name and his name, you're going to get a lot of results going back to like 2017 about mm-hmm. why this is the year for Cattell Marte. So I was very happy to see it finally happen uh, last year. Uh, but like, I'm not crying into my soup if uh, someone takes Marte <laughs> and I end up with Keston here at two guys. And by the way, I, quite I, a bit. I, I, I'm not necessarily predisposed to being nice to Derek because we were saying before the <laughs> before the pod – that I had chosen a, a moment to step away from the computer during the tout auction. And Jose Barrios who's one of my targets this year. Again, not that I'm going to get him no matter what, whatever the what cost is, 
he happened to go up for auction when I was away from the computer for all of like 40 seconds and got bid up really quickly and, and sold 19 bucks. And I know I would have gone in the twenties for Barrios. He was one of the few guys I actually had my name, you know, kind of highlighted mentally. So um, I don't, do you, if I had gone 20 on Barrios, can you even put yourself back in that moment? I mean, you think this would have gone to the mid twenties? You just would have backed off or. I think I would have backed off probably at 21. So if you'd been there for 20, okay. I would have said 21. You probably would have got him at 22. Okay. I was, I was starting okay, to well, run you know, well, I, Okay, you got it. I'm just going to give. I'm just going to send you a check for twenty two dollars, <laughs> and you just send me. Uh, you, you send me Jose Barrios. We'll call it even. Those are real life dollars too, Derek. That's not like space cash or anything. Or even, real, you know what? I'll give you twenty two dollars in, in real cash, and I'll give you twenty two dollars of fab. Yeah, so there you go. So it's like forty four dollars of value. It'd be amazing if we could make trades like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, a, I'm a big market team. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, I'm going to throw another baseball one at you okay. here, Pianow. Uh, Derek, we have, two, we have two music ones on here. You, one is clearly up your alley more, and one is clearly up my alley more. So leave me the one that's up my alley more. Um, uh, the, the next baseball one I've got for you, a couple of AL West shortstops, Marcus Semien or Carlos Correa? I, to me, it's definitely Semien. I think Correa has been overrated for most of his career. Semien's more likely to have a broad set of skills he can run. He may have just as much power as Correa does. And I love, I love, there's something about Semyon. Remember, he was a negative defender. He was, oh my God, don't look at a ball, hit the shortstop, you know, change the channel, shield your eyes, hide, hide it from the children. And he worked hard to make himself a, a plus defender. And, and he worked hard to, to make himself somebody who commands his at bats with the knowledge of the strike zone. I just, not, not that Correa isn't trying or doesn't want to be great, but there's something about Semyon's work ethic and the way it's fit his linear improvement that I, I really buy into. So, uh, I don't think I'll draft Correa. He's also lower in the lineup than we'd, we'd like our primary hitters to be. Houston's got a really, of course, strong lineup. I, I don't really know what really to do with a lot of Astros. I'm backing off Altuve this year because I'm not sure how much he's going to run. He's in a dangerous age pocket for me. But I feel like when Correa came into the league, people were thinking he may be an MVP candidate someday. I think the player that we thought he was going to be turned into Francisco Lindor. Not that their skills are completely you know, uh, apples to apples comparison. But I think Lindor turned into that star MVP caliber shortstop and Correa hasn't. And Semyon to me, grossly underrated last year. And I know he got a lot better, but you know, what a profit guy he was last year. I'm still going to price enforce him. Like he's going to keep 80 to 90% of what he did last year. I still think I'll have, I don't have a lot of them yet, but I still think I'll have a lot of Simeon on my team. And you know, part of it is I said shortstop was very deep and it is, but he's a clear check mark for me here. Scouting has to be such a, humbling thing to do professionally. I mean, even the very best scouts, uh, you, you could look at all the old scouting reports on Francisco Lindor, and I think they were effusive with praise about his glove, about his long-term ability to be uh, a shortstop who'd probably start at the position for 10-plus years, but nothing in any of those scouting reports ever suggested to me that he would be this type of hitter offensively. Like, if you look back at the last 10 or 15 years, Lindor might be relatively like one of the biggest misses in terms of someone who ended up being a lot better than even the most optimistic projections and scouting reports would have suggested. Scouting's hard. You know, at one point, like Brett Wallace was what top ten, top five prospects, something like that. You know, and he'd get traded. People like, oh my god, why are they trading Brett Wallace? You know, you think of. I know there's been off the field issues that I don't really want to get into, but you think of what we thought Addison Russell was going to be a few years ago. You know, people thought he's going to be an all-star and perennial. You know, how did Oakland let that guy get away? And then, and who's to say that maybe the off field stuff, you know, and his inability to, to kind of have his life in order may have led to him not developing as a player, but scouting is very, very difficult. And you see that in football all the time, right? I mean, you know, there's going to be mistakes made in free agency. Teams are going to whiff on draft picks. Um, the, the Patriots, my my, uh, my beloved New England Patriots, badly needed a receiver. They usually don't draft number one uh, receivers. Last year they did in a year where a bunch of rookie receivers hit. Nikhil Harry looked like he'd never played football before. I know he was hurt for a decent chunk of the season, but bottom line is scouting is very difficult. And it's going to be guys, you know, Goldtrip was never a top 100 prospect, turned into a star. Mariano Rivera wasn't a top 100 prospect. You know, it's going to be guys like that who pop, and there's going to be guys who we forever think are going to happen because they have the pedigree and they, they don't wear, they don't put together for whatever reason. And, and again, it just speaks to how difficult it is. 
Yeah, it's I'm I'm amazed by the quality of the work that the prospect community turns out. I think it's a, a smarter group than ever. It's much like the fantasy baseball industry as a whole, where we have better resources than we've ever had, and I still think the group gets humbled by the outcomes, which makes everything fun, of course. Let's go to their toss-up. Dan the Torpedoes versus the rest of Petty's library. Is there a better Petty album than Dan the Torpedoes? This, there's one, and it's Wildflowers, which is his best record. But Dan the Por- Torpedoes is exceptionally strong. And the, I also get to point out, and this is a really good record. You can say something's overrated and still really like it. The overrated album in the Petty catalog is Full Moon Fever. It's strong, but you know, Free Falling is not his best song. It's his most accessible song. It's the Tom Petty song for people who don't really like Tom Petty. Again, a lot of good songs on that record. I'm a zombie zoo guy. I like the whole thing, A to Z. It's an excellent record, but you know, a lot of people will quickly point to Full Moon Fever as his watershed work, and I think it's Wildflowers, where every song is good. And if you want to get the tone of who Petty was in the first swing of his career, you go to Damn the Torpedoes. What a great record that is, A to Z. But um, so for me, Wildflowers, the masterpiece, Dan the Torpedoes is you know the, the really strong. It's the Glavin to the Maddox. And then, you know, Full Moon Fever isn't a bad record, but it, I think it's clearly behind those two. Yeah, I think Wildflowers is the one that I played the most over the course of my life. Like, but I, 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 I keep wrestling with that one. I think what I've also been leaning on really heavily, really since, since Tom passed away, uh, was the anthology that they put out that you can listen to it on spotify it, it, i think what it is it's a reminder to anybody who's just kind of like a casual tom petty and the heartbreakers fan their catalog is so much deeper than the hits like it's it's unbelievable i've i've played that anthology start to finish on flights probably everywhere i've gone for the past year i've had it on in the car for most of the last year when i've just decided to turn on some old music and it's it's amazing. It's it's such an incredible compilation of work, and I'm just glad we a had gigantic it. regret of mine that I never saw him live. I don't know why. I, I guess I just thought he'd be around forever, and I would see him someday. And they have a Tom Petty channel on Sirius. I, I think it's Channel 31, and that's so they played both Petty music and just music. They, Tom Petty had a show. Uh, I think mm-hmm. Underground Garage. Underground Garage is a little steep, and Tom Petty had some buried treasure. Tom Petty, buried, buried treasure. treasure. Yeah, that's buried right. treasure. It's buried treasure. So. <laughs> At different junctures of the day, you'll actually have Petty doing a show and talking about the music. I, I absolutely love you know, the, the whole idea that game respects game. I love to listen to established musicians tell you, this is the guy I was growing up. I wanted to be this guy. I wanted to be that guy. Or I wanted to play with this musician or cover this. this song. You know, when we got this guy to go on my record, I was so excited. I I can never get tired of the, the process, the creative process, and who influenced who and what you know, Tom Petty was thinking about when he was 15 and what records he was buying in college. I, I get off on that stuff. I, I can't tell you how much I enjoy that channel and I hope it never goes away. Yeah. I like it quite a bit too. And I know for sure that I've heard uh, plenty of stone songs coming on that channel. Uh, you guys know I'm a stones guy. So I'm going to take mm-hmm. us to our last music one with the stones uh, that they're incredible for run album yep. uh, of beggars banquet, let it bleed, sticky fingers, exile on main street. Which of those four, if you can only take one, which of the one, which one are you taking? Sticky fingers, but really, there's there's no wrong answer in those four, and I agree, it's the best uh, for for me. The best I know, Dylan can make a pitch, the Beatles can make a pitch, maybe even the Who can make a pitch, um, but I think that's the best four album run, or even five album run, if you want to put Goat's Head Soup in there. But uh, for me, Sticky Fingers is the pinnacle of of rock and roll. And the Rolling Stones, you know, they they have attitude and they, and they have. You know, so much energy and, and, and so so many great guitar riffs and licks and everything. But I mean, they play they play ballads. I mean, you've talked about there's a country music angle to them. They have all the pitches. You know, they're the U Darvish of rock and roll. They they can throw. They may have too many pitches sometimes. And I think they better. Every once in a while, I'll meet somebody who'll, who'll kind of shrug off the stones, and I'll say, you know, if you really care about rock and roll and how to mix different harmonies and how to, to take all these different sounds. And the, the horns and the organs and, and the voices and all the different guitar sounds. I'll mix it all together and make it sound terrific. I think they understood it better than anybody who's ever played music. 
Yeah, when I actually first started getting into classic rock around you know fifteen years old or so, mm-hmm. I had a, a friend's dad who told me and my friend that you know same thing in in different words, of course, that you can't really call yourself a fan of this genre of music unless you know and are a fan of the Stones. And I'm with you entirely on this one, Pia. Now, uh, Sticky Fingers would be my one if I could only take one. First of all, I would cry for like a week straight <laughs> that I could only have one of the four forever, and then I would settle on Sticky Fingers. But uh, there's really no wrong answer in the quartet. I'll also say, I think the most underrated Stones album is Tattoo You. What a strong release. Mm. I, and I know some of that stuff was, was actually recorded long before the 1981 release. But to me, I, I don't think I don't think the second half of their career was that bad. But I think their last truly great monster album was Tattoo You in 1981. I think that's one of the most difficult things for the all-time great artists. Their careers continue on. They continue to tour. They want to make new music. Like I saw Paul McCartney last summer at Lambeau and it was one of the absolute best concerts I've ever been to. I think the Petty Pearl Jam show I saw back in 2006 is the only concert that comes to mind that I think was better. I mean, it's it's hard it's hard to go up against two elites like that even when you're Sir Paul, right? Mm-hmm. And he knew like he would introduce a new song and goes I know you love it when we play the old stuff, but uh, we got to play some of the new stuff too. Like he was just kind of like apologizing about playing the new music. The new music's not bad. But the old stuff was so good, and there was so much of it. I think that's where that disappointment comes from. But you still have that creative itch. You still want to make new music. I, I could totally respect that. So I think that's the that's the tough thing. It's to like live up to your own reputation when you reach that level of greatness. It's got to be an insane uh, amount of pressure. Uh, one more baseball question. You mentioned you Darvish with, with too many pitches. The last baseball toss-up for you. Darvish versus Syndergaard for 2020. This is an unfair question for me because I'm kind of the anti Syndergaard guy because I look at his raw stuff and then I look at his strikeout rate at a time where there's never been easier strikeouts to get. And I wonder, why is he striking out one guy per inning? It doesn't make sense to me. I don't know if the defense is in his head. Maybe he just never got on the same page with Ramos last year. And you know, I don't know, maybe they'll even try to steer Ramos away from him this year or they'll just be more comfortable working together. But I feel like Syndergaard should be a star, and instead he's just a good pitcher, and I'm not really sure why. And so I'm, I'm going to buy into the last version of, of Darvish I saw. I haven't bought him yet. I don't know if I'll have Darvish this year. I kind of would like to have a share just because I think when we eventually get baseball back, it'd be a fun guy to watch pitch now that maybe he's pared his repertoire down to something manageable. And he actually figured I – mean, the guy had too many pitches. The guy had too many things going on, and he, he really needed to discard some things and figure out what worked best for him as a mix. But I think he's – finally gotten there i'm not sure that Syndergaard, for whatever reason not that his numbers are okay but there's been a lot of injury history there last year he stayed healthy he just pitched you know, very mediocre for most of the season there's something that doesn't add up with Syndergaard, and i can't give you a good explanation for it but i'm going to buy into i'm going to focus on the results i know people say you know you gotta look at process you gotta look at metrics but i see that strikeout rate with Syndergaard, and something doesn't add up for me i really like that cluster of pitchers you've got you know generally within about a round of one another Chris Paddock, Lucas Giolito, Zach Greinke, Darvish, Syndergaard, maybe Tyler Glass now, depending on how bullish your uh, your room is. I, I like that. Uh, I like that group of pitchers. There's a lot of guys in there who I'm happy to have on my team, but uh, I'm with you there, Pia. Now you Darvish over uh, Noah Syndergaard. I really think the Darvish that we saw, <clears throat> excuse me, in the second half last year is the sort of guy that we could uh, count on seeing for whatever ends up being uh, the full season. This year, uh, it's been a fun show. Unfortunately, we have to let you go here. Uh, Pianow, uh, that's Scott Pianowski from Yahoo. You can get him at Scott underscore. Don't forget the underscore Pianowski uh, on Twitter. That's P I A N O W S K I. Pianow, thanks so much for joining us here today. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, you know, uh, shout out to the athletic. You, you guys are an all star collection of talent uh over at the fan the athletic as a whole has a ton of talent it's just just staggering but you have so many fantasy voices that are just incredible and i'm not going to try to name all of them because i'll I'll leave somebody out but uh the pods that you guys are doing are are excellent the content is outstanding it's it's something i subscribe to and i think everybody should And and by the way we're at a time now where i don't think it's ever been more important to support whether it's the local businesses that you care about or like in journalism, you know, the whole free model has gone away. We have to pay for stuff that we put value on. And I strongly believe, I believe that your podcasts are free, but you know, the, the written stuff you have to pay for, I really just want to say it's worth it. 
there's always something to read. I always feel like I'm reading like 5% of what I actually would like to read. I just don't have time to get to all of it, but it's an incredible value. I, I can't recommend it enough. So, um, you know, if you're listening to this show and, and you haven't decided what to do, I guarantee you, no matter what sport you follow, if it's a college, pro, local, uh, people are doing all sorts of great historical work, work right now because we don't have games. I mean, it's an unbelievable value. Get yourself over to The Athletic. I, I know you won't regret it. And Derek, did you put him on the payroll before we uh, started the show? That was great. <laughs> it was, no, that was that was that uh, was awesome. I, uh, I, I, I thing I want to point out: if you're not familiar with Scott, I think if you're listening to our show, you, you know Scott because he's been doing this for so long and doing this so well. The amazing thing is that not only Scott's a great writer, but he's also a great podcaster and he's a great player too across multiple sports. Like I have kind of whittled down to baseball and football. I think I've played against PNL in every sport over the years except for golf. I don't think we've ever played in a golf league together because I'm I'm just I'm running uphill the whole time if we do that. But um, <laughs> you're good, like great even at everything you do. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, and um, everybody to know when, when fantasy does kick in, Yahoo Sports will be ready for you. Uh, we're, we usually allow very late drafts and auctions as it is, but they've pushed that back even six weeks. So uh, we hope you'll be ready to check that out and do listen to my podcast when you can, uh, the Yahoo Fantasy Baseball Podcast. But um, I appreciate that. My, my Tout Wars record has not been particularly strong recently, so that's something I, I got to fix. I know you've you've won Tout Wars stuff before. One of the great traditions about Tout Wars, every league, every league that's in um, an ongoing league, you know, a, a uh, recurring league, should have traditions like this. And Tout Wars, if you win your league, you get to name one of the sandwiches on the Foley's menu the following season, and that's. I think all the time about what my sandwich would be or what my meal would, my, my food item would be. And it's just one of the great traditions of it. I, I know they put the menus up on the Tout Wars website. We, we didn't actually get to go to Foley's this year for obvious reasons. But uh, one of my favorite things about the community is just, it's one thing we do, right? We, we give those guys a shout out and they actually are on the menu. In fact, I think, um, Beller, was it you who you wanted to copy the menu? You couldn't make it, but you were on the menu. And I think I mailed you one. Yeah, that was um, a great. A couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, that's how cool it is. I mean, it looks, they really make it look sharp. I mean, the people at Foley's are outstanding. So, um, you know, that's just when we get back to the games that we care about and life is back to, to normal, just, just think about stuff like that. Whether it's a league trophy that you pass year to year or just some cool tradition, and that's what makes a house a home in the, in the fantasy world. So, you know, what can I say, man? I, I, you know, I love you guys. I love the community. And, um, I think we can take something that's been really difficult and turn it into a positive really soon. Definitely. Well said, PNL. Well said. We're happy to have you on. Uh, this podcast is available iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you listen to pods. If you are on a platform where you can leave a rating and a review, we would greatly appreciate it. Uh, for Derek Riper, I'm Michael Van Bellers. has been uh, Michael Van Beller. <laughs> for Derek Van Riper, I am Michael Beller. Awesome. I am. I mean, like you guys said, the, the <laughs> last, the last couple of weeks have felt like, I mean, it might as well have been three years. For Derek Van Riper, I am Michael Beller. Yes, I do know, do know my own name. Uh, the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast returns on Monday. Until then, have a great weekend. Most importantly, take care of yourselves. Uh, 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 uh,